Hey there, Dive Buddies, and welcome to the penultimate show of Season 3. Today, I'm talking to a man who doesn't actually know how to say no in life. A diver, soldier, Royal Marine, comedian, author, ginger, cave diving wombat, and even a candidate for a one-way trip to Mars. Josh Richards has hit the mainstream media recently with his findings of a cave extension in Mount Gambia, and Josh joins me today to talk through some of his life adventures and, of course, that fantastic find and its exploration. Welcome to the show, buddy. How are you doing? Thank- I'm good. Thanks for having me. Um, now, we've obviously brought you on the show to talk about caves and stuff like that, but let's back it way back up and uh, just find out a little bit more about you because I think this is the first time I've ever had, um, well, not only a comedian, but a ginger <laughs> and someone that could possibly have lived on Mars. Um, you're ticking a lot of boxes. <laughs> I, I, I try. I definitely try. Yeah. Um, I've, I've always called it career ADD. So it's try and do as many things at once, all at once, and do them all re- relatively poorly, um, but yeah. just keep crashing at it as hard as I can. So. <laughs> Well, how did you how did you get into um, the diving side of things to start with? I started diving very early, to be honest with you. Um, Dad was a was a, a diver for the army for a very long time. Um, he started doing recreational civilian diving, uh, sort of in the early eighties, I think. Uh, became mm-hmm. a, a scuba instructor, um, so I grew up with it right from before I was born. Um, Dad was diving and teaching and all that sort of stuff. So by the time it finally rolled around to me sort of hitting 12 um i was already well and truly ready to do sort of my junior open water um i think my oldest paddy certification is from when i'm nine i think it's a like a junior skin diver or something like that so like (laughs) very much a water baby started very very early there's a great photo of me with my dad's um like his old aqualung regulator and one of his masks in the bathtub um at like (laughs) age six so yeah started very early um I kind of stepped in and out of it. It became very much a thing that I did with my dad. Um, and dad was dad had left the army a long time before uh, and sort of all through my teens, it was mainly sort of crayfishing. And I don't, I don't like crayfish. I don't eat crayfish. <laughs> um, but it was, a, it was a thing to do. Um, obviously, also ginger, which meant going out in the boat, got sunburnt. Um, I tend to get a little bit seasick. So it's like it wasn't a great combination of things. There's still a little bit of like teenage trauma of being sort of dragged out to go on these fishing trips with dad. Um, We'd go up to places like Nalu Fishing Station and dive with tiger sharks and hammerheads and all that sort of stuff while trying to fish. Um, And that was my teenage years. And I sort of went, you know what, this this kind of sucks. Um, Stepped away from it, uh, went to university, um, joined the army myself. and started showing an interest in the diving side of things from there. Okay. Uh, kind of went down the pathway of becoming an open water instructor. Um, I did all my technical diving, all my technical training, um, open circuit tech, uh, probably early 20s, same year that I became a paddy instructor. Um, same year I became an SSI instructor. Again, multi, ADD, overload ADD, <laughs> do all the things at once. <laughs> Uh, I kind of stepped back from all of that. I um, left the army and moved across to the Navy as a diver, uh, which was fairly short-lived. Um, lots of paperwork, uh, lots of being stuffed around and sort of, yeah, going through the whole defence circus was uh, not great. 
So yeah. I kind of turned around to the, the Australian Defence Force and went, you know what, you can you can stick this and uh, move to the UK and I joined the Royal Marine Commandos. Um, and the idea so was, yeah, going through and, and becoming a, a combat swimmer for those guys. So. Bloody hell. What so, yeah. um, what's about that one? I mean, I'm I'm ex forces myself, not uh, not a bootneck. When you guys were digging trenches, I was booking into five star hotels. And nice, shit like that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my grandfather, on my, again on my dad's side. Um, there's quite mm. a long, there's a long military history through my both sides of my family, um, particularly mm. my dad's side. I think. I don't say this too often to, to folks from the UK, but um, the furthest we've traced the family name back to is um, is actually the the Oliver Cromwell's right hand man that brought some of the engineering across from the Dutch to knock down castle walls. Um, wow! Yeah, so army army engineers. I was an army engineer. Dad was an engineer as well. They're called sappers, and it mm-hmm. comes from the Dutch term sap, where you would dig trenches towards a castle wall dig under the wall and then pack it full of hay and wood and set it on fire and it will drop the walls down. And mm. um, that's where the army engineers sort of get their name from. And, yeah, it turns out my great, 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 whatever um, was the guy that brought that technology across from the Dutch to help Oliver Cromwell knock down castle walls. So I don't say that. I, didn't, I never said that when I was a bootneck. I never told anyone that <laughs> while I was in. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's long history on that side of things. So I kind of, yeah. Um, mm. after I got what? frustrated with the ADF, um, I sort of went, what do I do? And dad sort of turned around and said, well, there's two options for you. You can either learn French and become join the Foreign Legion um, or you can uh, use your your ancestry visa, use your, your heritage um, and go and join the Royal mm. Marines. So I, uh, I opted for number two. Okay. And um, dad, dad's originally British, is he? Uh, dad's uh, dad's family's British, so dad was born okay. um, in Australia, but um, all the rest of the family's Welsh. Um, so my two aunties oh. and what's that? I know, I know. That explains <laughs> um, the uh, white skin a and lot. Ginger hair, mate. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, ironically, dad's quite dark. Like, so really? <laughs> it doesn't um, doesn't explain. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How was life in the in the Marines? I mean, I've, I've got a lot of respect for the Marines. It it was interesting. Um, the reality for me was that I was very good at it, um, but I hated what it was turning me into. Um, I I felt myself falling into a role where I I was pretty much an enforcer. I was a few years older than most of the guys that I was going through training with. Um, mm. I was one of the few that had previous experience and. I was scared of the things these guys were doing um, that was going to wind up them dying. Um, there were different... We had recruits die during training. Um, there were yeah. things that happened where, yeah. And I I stepped into quite a, an aggressive, nasty role that I really didn't like. This angry little five-foot-six ginger kid from Australia screaming at these six-foot-three county rugby players um, yeah. because they were... They were making mistakes and not realising how dangerous the mistakes they were making were. So mm. um, I didn't like what it turned me into. Um, they were very much at the time, this is all 2010, so it was um, we were all gearing up to, her- uh, to head out and deploy on Herrick 13 and 14. Um, and so it was everyone was going to Afghanistan. Everyone's heading out. Um, everyone was on a war footing. Um, everyone would be going out. Um, if you weren't doing training afterwards... Uh, to become a driver or a mortarman or whatever, you were doing casualty replacement. Like you were heading straight out. Um, and quite a few of the guys that I had trained with 
went straight out as soon as they finished training. So it's one of the unique things about the Royal Marines. They're the only unit in the world where your your final sort of, yeah, your final four months of training is preparation for war. Um, you can deploy directly out of basic training um, and they're the only unit that does it. So it was pretty scary um, on that front. I got a real taste for, yeah, recognising, I suppose, um, that I didn't want to be there. So... Yeah. So from, um, you know, you, you've done the Marines bit and then decided it's time to, to bang out. Was that the return to Australia then? A little bit. Um, I actually loved living in the UK. Uh, and the reality with the with the Royal Marines was I got sick. Um, I got bitten by a tick out on Dartmoor. Um, didn't sort of recognise it. I uh, didn't know what was going on. I'd been bitten by hundreds of ticks with the army here in Australia. Um, yeah. Didn't didn't give it a second thought. Um, came back off this, this um, midwinter exercise that we'd done pulled the tick off my stomach and sort of went, oh, righto, whatever. And five weeks later, couldn't walk up a set of stairs. Um, I mm. picked up Lyme's disease and uh, it just annihilated me. Um, so I ended up spending, I think it was about 10, 12 weeks in rehab. Um, Bloody hell. And the stepping back from the high intensity and stepping back from the, the push, 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 uh, I had an opportunity to actually think about what I was doing. Um, had an opportunity to see the guys that I was training with um, and some of the attitudes that they had around different things and kind of recognised that I it's not somewhere I wanted to be. And the, the biggest reality out of all of it was that I didn't I didn't really belong in the military. I was very good yeah. at it. It was one, and this is a common theme for me, being good at different things but actually not belonging there or not wanting to be there. Um Mm. and seeing nasty elements in my personality sort of come out because of the jobs that I'm doing. So, mm. um, yeah, it was a, in the end, it was a fairly easy decision to make, to leave. Um, my dad regularly asks, like, do I miss it? And I know he misses it. Um, I have mm. never missed any part of the military. <laughs> um, <laughs> folks talk about, like, missing their mates and blah, blah, blah. And I do still have some really great mates, um, but not that many. And yeah. I certainly wish I could unlearn some of the things that I learned. So, um, mm. I, but I loved the UK and I loved being there. Um, it was an interesting time to be there. And yeah, I ended up sticking around for a few years and that's essentially how I got into comedy. Um, so I, I'd done a little bit of stand up in Australia before I'd left and didn't really know what to do with myself and kind of went, well, I, I can do this comedy thing um, while I try and find a job. It'll give me something, some sort of a centre line that I can hang on to um, while I reshape my entire life that has previously been based all around the military. And, uh, yeah, it drew me into comedy. Um, I ended up working for um, for an artist. I ended up working for Damien Hurst um, out in Gloucestershire um, okay. for a while as his, uh, his science advisor setting things on fire. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, doing, doing stand-up. Um, that's essentially how I got into stand-up. And it was actually the Mars stuff that brought me back to Australia. Um, I'd been doing it for a few years. I've been doing stand-up for a few years. I'd done a few tours um, yeah. and was getting burnt out with it. Decided to write a comedy show about sending people one way to Mars as kind of a metaphor for me leaving comedy and mm. uh, found this organisation that was planning to do it. So I signed up and decided the UK media were not going to want to chat to some random Aussie living in Brighton. Uh, so I came back to Australia and started speaking to the media and speaking to schools and folks like that here instead. So, bloody hell! It's, it's a bit a, of an adventure. It's a bit of an adventure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so we've done, we've done the military bit, we've done the UK, we've done comedy, we've come back and we're now talking about Mars. Now, let, let's get into the weeds of this one because um, <laughs> I, can, I, I kind of guarantee that I'm never going to have a possible Martian on the show. <laughs> <again>. <laughs> um, what's, the, what's the background to it? Could, a bit more detail on, um, on what you found. So I, uh, the, going way back, uh, yeah. I originally did a degree in applied physics and psychology. And as part of my physics degree, we were looking at all sorts of different things. And I ended up reading a paper by a fairly well-known guy um, by the name of Professor Paul Davies, who was essentially arguing that the first people going to Mars would have to go one way based on the engineering, based on the, the changes to their body. You realistically should be planning to send people one way. The challenges to bring them back are mm. orders of magnitude more than what it is to get them there and keep them alive. So why not send them and keep them there? And I remember reading it back in the early 2000s and thinking, this is awesome. Like, why the hell would you want to come back? What's so great about Earth? Like, if you had a chance to go and live on another planet, sign me up. And that idea kind of circled back as I was looking at getting out of comedy. Uh, mm. And I sort of went, you know what, I, I do really, this is, it's a nice metaphor. It's a chance to talk about science. A lot of the shows that I'd done, I'd done were based around science. Um mm the science and religion of doomsday and all sorts of weird and wonderful different things. I, I loved using comedy as a vehicle for science communication. So I went, you know what, we can write this whole show about Mars. I know lots of stuff about Mars. Let's write a show about Mars and we'll talk about how um, we should have gone, should have gone there 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and again, bear in mind, this is 2010. So I was yeah. sort of arguing that we probably should have gone in the 90s and had the technology to go in the 90s. Why didn't we do it? And the show was originally going to be quite bitter. Um, I just finished it in Fringe for the third or fourth year, I think, and things mm -hmm. had not gone well, and I was pretty dark. <laughs> and I was done with comedy and wanted to write this quite bitter, angry show about how humanity sucked because we hadn't gone past low Earth orbit since 1971. And, uh, yeah, the whole thing spun around in a heartbeat. I again, was sitting in a little cafe in Brighton and started researching this show, typed Mars One Way to try and find the original article to start sort of basing this show around it. And Mars One had made their first sort of public announcement about two or three days before. And so my entire feed from Google was filled up with this announcement from this bizarre Dutch-based organisation saying they were going to open applications up for astronauts and anyone from anywhere who was over the age of 18, fit and healthy and had the right sort of aptitude would be able to mm. apply. And so the comedy show instantly changed. It went from being, like I said, quite dark, quite bitter and saying, why didn't we do this? Humans suck to I am signing up for this. They're looking for a crew of four. Who are the other three going to be? Um, and I, I basically shaped the entire, that particular comedy show around yeah. the structure of a band um, you need four different kind of personalities and they kind of roughly meet up with the same stereotypes that you get of a four-piece band. So like, you know, a, a quirky high-maintenance lead singer that's sort of leading and driving things forward, a bass player who kind of keeps them in check a little bit, a weirdo keyboard player who's got specialist skills that no one really understands, and a drummer who just kind of keeps everything together and is always happy, just consistent. And I was looking for those those three other band members, I suppose. Uh, and that was the, um, which, that which was the one, premise which of the one, show. Which one were you to start with? I, I was arguing that I was the, the lead singer um, because I was <laughs> writing the comedy show. The reality is I'm not. 
Um, the reality is I'm probably much more the quirky weirdo keyboard player um, who does niche in and get really involved in specialist skills. Um, yeah, but I off- I need to be offset by other folks who I can take charge. I will li- willingly take charge, but it's not something I want to do. So I'm much more interested in yeah having a, a specialist set of skills that I can help out with rather than trying to run the whole thing. So yeah. um, I ended up writing another three shows around all of it um, and turned two of them into books and all sorts of stuff. So it's been it's been a big 10 years and it's realistically only in the last couple of years I've stepped back from all of the Mars side of things, um, focused on cave diving. The program itself shut down at the end of last year. Uh, they sort of went, they couldn't get the funding, They'd run into a lot of roadblocks and they sort of finally decided that it was all going to be a little bit too much for that particular project. Yeah. Uh, but I still speak about it a lot. I still visit schools. I still had a, I had a school contact me last week, sort of booking me for National Science Week in August next year. There's <laughs> um, still a lot of interest, still a lot of people who want to talk about it. it. It's just a shame that the specific program that I was involved with has shut down. But Well, it's, it's, a, it's such a, an amazing, you know, concept you know let's 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 do this thing and what's you know you, you sign up for it and they say hey you can apply what's the what's the procedure that you're gonna have to go through though because i mean you've only got to look at us two on the screen right now you're five foot six i'm <laughs> six foot two and and twice your body weight I, i'm gonna take up far too much I, space so I'm I, out. I fit a little bit better <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's an interesting one there's a lot of um there's a lot of preconceptions around what people expect an astronaut to be and the reality is what we actually want for people going to Mars is radically different from the right stuff. Um, mm. It's been a running joke for all of us that the right stuff is the wrong stuff for Mars. Um, those A-type personalities, very driven, very competitive, you know, fittest, I can run further, I can do more push-ups, all that sort of nonsense. It's the exact opposite um, of what we actually want. Um, I've joked quite regularly about us really wanting to send four Homer Simpsons to Mars. Um, Homer Simpson's blended with like MacGyver, uh, Richard yeah. Dean Anderson, not the new MacGyver, but like Richard Dean Anderson with a mullet MacGyver um, <laughs> as a skill set. You really want folks who can fix lots of problems. They can improvise. They can, you know, they're generalists. They're not the top of any particular game. They're very, very broad in their knowledge. They can always get specialist information and, and back up and support from people back on Earth. But because of the time delay between the two planets, it takes anywhere between you know three and forty-five minutes to send communications backwards and forwards between Earth and Mars. Mm. You can get that information, but if something's gone horribly wrong, you need folks who can act quickly in an emergency to stabilise the situation and then get guidance and advice back from Earth. So you kind of want couch potatoes who will sit around, not do a whole lot, watch a whole lot of Netflix, keep an eye on the plants, keep things running, especially for the first two years. And then later on, you might have the more adventurous types who will start going outside the habitat, going and exploring different areas, going and venturing out. But we'd, we're actually, there's a lot more parallels between folks going to Mars and folks that we send down to Antarctica or we see on nuclear submarines or long-range Arctic patrols. There's a lot of parallels um, with those kind of personalities. And I, I don't know if you've ever dealt with submariners, but they are weird. Um and that's the kind of personality. That's that's actually the kind of people we want to send, rather than these high performance fighter pilot types. Uh, we mm. want we kind of want to send folks who 
create their own culture. Um, they know what they need to know really well, but they're also very general and they're happy to learn and happy to laugh. And they might appear weird from the outside, but inside their particular group, um, they've got a very strong culture that supports each other. I think one of the main things there is you're going to have to have four people that are going to get on for a long period of time in a very small space. And the other interesting one, this is probably one that the military doesn't deal with as much, is it's also a mixed gender crew. Um, So it's two men and two women. So there's all those other dynamics that come in when you you have a mixed gender crew. We need that basically for stability um, because you put Mm. four guys together, they're going to kill each other within a few months. Um, (laughs) Put four women together, they're probably going to kill each other within a few months. But there's all these complex dynamics that need to be navigated through all of that as well. So the big thing that Mars One was going to do, they were screening us out. So they were, I shouldn't even screen us out. We were screening ourselves out. They were asking us really hard questions, getting us Mm -hmm. to do these applications, to fill out videos and getting us to think about what we were doing. And most folks actually dropped out themselves. They weren't kicked out by Mars One or excluded or anything like that. They decided, oh, actually, no, now that I've thought about this, um, this is not for me. And they pulled themselves out of the program. Mm. We went from 202,586 initially uh, down to the last 100 candidates. And realistically, um, it was the cut from, it was the psych interview that we did that reduced the group from about 660 down to that final 100. That was the first time Mars One actually were excluding people. They had good candidates, good people in that list, but they decided not to go with them because they weren't as good as someone else was. So yeah, um, yeah. It, was a, it was an interesting process to go through. The actual selection process all up uh, started in 2013 from memory. Uh, applications closed in August of 2013, and they actually announced that 100 uh, in February of 2015. So okay. realistically, the... The five, six years after that, that we've been sort of, it's just been waiting. And it's been a whole yeah. lot of waiting for the next phase where they'd start putting us together, put us into stressful situations, see how we work together mm-hmm. in teams, problem solve, all those sort of things that yeah. never eventuated, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that the last thing they're looking for is alpha males that are just going to upset the apple cart. We, I, I'll, I'll say it now that the program shut down. We had a, we had a few <laughs> <laughs> and we... <laughs> We also had a little secret Facebook group, a secret Facebook group where all of us could get in there and chat amongst ourselves. And I don't think I would be alone in saying that there were a lot of us out of that 100 that were very concerned about a couple of specific individuals um, mm. turning up. Um, no, yeah, no point delving into into it too deeply, but yeah. um, those sort of folks, they showed their colours very early on. Um we all tried to give everyone as much, uh, as best a chance as possible. Um, and I had a couple of interesting situations where I had potentially a really great impression of someone that I'd seen do interviews, I'd emailed them, I'd done all sorts of different things, and then I met them in person and went, oh, God, no, 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 there is no <laughs> way we're going to Mars together. And likewise, folks who I absolutely wrote off, folks who I sort of thought, no, nah, like, they're an idiot. Um mm based on their interviews, based on all sorts of different interactions, I would then meet them and sort of go, oh, not 100% sure, and then step back from the situation and go, oh, wait, no, no, he's he's 22. Like, he's still figuring himself out. Um, or he, you know, she was in an incredibly stressful situation um, at that particular time. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's been interesting interacting with all of these different candidates and getting an impression of who they are as people and actually seeing them over 10 years or five, six years that we've all been shortlisted, seeing them actually develop as people as well. It's been really interesting. I've made some really fantastic friends out of it. Um, mm. But, yeah, there were definitely a few folks that we were um, we were hoping wouldn't uh, be further shortlisted later on because um, they would not be the great – would not be – the kind of people you'd want to go camping with. Yeah. Hey, well, um, it would, you know, from the guys that are running the show, it, it would make sense to leave people like that and just to see how you react. To a degree, and they discuss that as well. Um, yeah. There's definitely testing that would go on and there's definitely elements. They, they would deliberately, they were being very upfront about deliberately creating stressful environments for us. Um, hmm. There was going to be five or six days of essentially corporate team building but with all the controls taken off it. So the kind of, you know, you go and do a corporate team building weekend and you kind of build, do challenges and build things together. Now make those same things competitive. Um, now make everyone completely and utterly exhausted with sleep deprivation um, and make it an environment where you know you're pushing to be part of a select group of 12 to 24 people that would start the training. Um, it, it probably would have gotten quite ugly quite quickly. And so those more hostile personalities hopefully would have been filtered out in the first couple of days. But I know that they would have left some people in because some folks, it's, it's that whole thing of some folks um, push limits and other folks pull back. And you don't want a completely conservative group and you don't want a completely progressive group. You want that internal tension. But it's mm -hmm. about that group finding uh, a balance with that tension so that, you know, so-and-so pisses me off but they come up with fantastic ideas and so-and-so pisses me off because they are always holding things back. Um, but sometimes I need to be held back so I don't go and do stupid things. So it's about finding that crew dynamic that works for everyone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, how confident are you that you'd have got down to the uh, whittling stick? I, I don't know. Uh, okay. I am still not entirely convinced that I've got the right personality type for it. And since the program shut down and I've started getting involved in other things, I've become even less certain about that. Uh, okay. At the time, I was quite, I was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not certain, but I'm going to do everything I can to make this a reality. I've shaped my entire life around this. I've become an ambassador for it. I've cut off relationships. I've done all sorts of different things to make Mars my life. And then as we all started to sort of lose a bit of faith in it uh, and then eventually the project shut down, I started questioning a lot more of that and started to sort of recognise that, hey, I do have a lot more to offer here on Earth. I've got a lot of things that I could be doing and maybe, you know, completely and utterly obsessing on this one thing, which to its credit kept me focused for 10 years, which nothing else has ever done before. Um, <laughs> Keeping me on the track for that, uh, maybe there's other things I could do. So I, I'm still uncertain. I'm glad that I got as far as I did. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like I would have been in for a decent chance to get through the next cut uh, into, this, into the group of the 12 to 24 people that would actually start 10 years of training. Yep. Whether or not I would have been on that first crew, I, I've always said I don't care. And I, that's one thing I'm very, very certain about. I've never actually cared about any of it, whether or not I was specifically part of it. The important thing for me was that someone was doing it. Um, mm. It was always about 
someone getting involved. And the best way for me to advocate for people going and living on other planets was to put my hand up and sign to be there, to be one of the folks who go, yes, I would 100% do this and advocate for that. So um, whether or not I personally was the right person for it, I don't know. Um, I I may never know, but I knew the best way to support the ideas to support what i wanted to to see happen was to put my hand up for it yeah first first shout and um what a hell of an experience it was yeah it was an adventure <laughs> um i think we we figured it out that i spoke to something like one hundred and thirty thousand kids over the space of seven or eight years like it was wow. yeah and to me that's the bigger thing that was the mm. far more important thing out of it um if if an astronaut had come and visited my school when I was in year seven, when I was 12 or something like that, it would have changed my whole life. Um, I almost certainly wouldn't have gone into the military. Um, (laughs) I probably would have gone down a far more focused pathway uh, with science, engineering, um, even more than what I did. I'm glad for the experience that I had. I'm glad that I went off and did all the different things that I did because it did make me a good candidate for what they were looking for. Hmm. But, if someone had come along and visited my, my school when I was you know, in primary school and talked about how when I grew up, I'd have the opportunity to you know, potentially live, live on another planet, uh, it would have made a huge impact for me. So that was the much bigger thing that was far more important for me than whether or not the project ever succeeded. It was being able to basically go and speak to year six and sevens in particular and sort of mm. say, hey, science is pretty awesome. Um, don't lose interest in it get involved Mm. and there's really cool things that you can do if you um if you pursue this so yeah i'm happy about that right it's a great age to get them as well because i mean perfect age even (laughs) even going going on nearly 50 years old i still remember being a kid and wishing that i was going to be an astronaut one day and fly through fly to the moon you know so to have a dude rock up and say you know this is what we're going to do it's it's like wow yeah and even if uh, my biggest hope with all of it was not that I would necessarily walk on Mars. It would be that potentially one of the 130-something thousand kids that I spoke to, they would do it. Um, It's far more important for me that that idea is supported. And of those kids, you know, maybe one or two would have the opportunity to go and walk on another planet. But tens of thousands of the others would be involved in industries that would be supporting that, would be making life better on Earth, um, all mm. these different elements. So um, it's a bit like, you know, a kid wanting to be a fighter pilot. When when I was in my early teens, um, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I was like, yeah. I want to fly F-18s. Um, and learning more about that later on, it's like you've got one fighter pilot, but you've got a crew of, you know, 100 plus people who refuel it, do maintenance on it, um, arm it, um, like de-rig it after a flight. So, you know, there's hundreds of of people hours that go into a single flight hour for an F-18. Um, mm-hmm. Same as, you know, driving F-1s. Um, you've got this enormous crew of people that support one driver. The driver's just at the pointy end um, and we all sort of go, oh, that's amazing. But there's a massive crew of people that are there to support it. So um, I, I suppose I wanted to inspire kids by talking about walking on another planet but also encourage the ones who wouldn't necessarily do that themselves but then might go and build rovers that support the people on mars and all those different things so um, that was far more important for me than actually succeeding um ever was yeah no good on you mate uh and and 
obviously you're still very active with doing the public speaking for the kids. Is that going to just continue as long as you can? Uh, I'd like to. Uh, I don't actively pursue it anymore. Mm -hmm. It is a little bit complicated for me because I have to add that sort of that little asterisk on the end of it, turn around and saying, I'm not going anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. If someone offered me an opportunity, I'd sign up again in a heartbeat. Uh, but the project that I was involved in has shut down and that kind of, especially when it comes to the corporate speaking side of things, um, mm. corporate want to talk to someone who's 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 doing it, going places. Um, schools are much more flexible. They sort of go, oh, you know, um, we'd like you to come and talk about Mars. You're a Mars specialist. Um, yeah. But the corporate speaking, the keynote, side of things has definitely dialed down quite a bit and COVID knocked a huge hole in it as well. Um, that yeah. basically put a stop to pretty much everything for a while there. And, uh, but you know, different things. One of the cool things about uh, the cave diving side of stuff was shifting out of, um, as Mars one was kind of winding down, I mm. found an interest and a love for cave diving. And so I'm in the process at the moment of sort of going, well, if I'm not talking, if I'm not doing corporate keynotes about Mars anymore, maybe I can start doing corporate keynotes about cave exploration. So Hell yeah. it's, um, Hell yeah. yeah, I'm I'm right in that transition phase at the moment. I think the next few months will decide whether or not I want to pursue that. If I actually mm. want to talk to people anymore or um, <laughs> or uh, if I, yeah, I focus on, on book writing, which is uh, one of the other things that I've absolutely loved for the last mm. 10 years or so. Yeah. Well, it's a, I think it's a, a nice transition that, you know, the concept of living on another planet. And then I explain to people, you know, and people ask why I go dive. And it's, it's actually visiting another world mm. without leaving this planet. And, you know, what you do and what many other awesome dudes and dudettes do is cave diving, which is taking that to the extreme even more. Um, I, I, hats off to you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I, cave You're fucking crazy. But well, <laughs> so cave diving is an interesting one for me. I Again, I've been diving most of my life, um, mm. but it's mostly felt like work. So, you know, diving with dad, getting crayfish, you know, animals that I don't eat. Um, yeah. And it's that always kind of felt a bit like work, but, you know, you know you're doing it with dad. It's kind of an, you know, that's a fun experience. Um, and then doing it with the Navy, obviously, was actual work. Um, if I'd mm. gone on to do it with the Royal Marines, it would have been more work. Uh, teaching scuba always felt like work to me, always felt like I was pushing people through a course so we'd be able to go and do cool stuff afterwards. It was never about them learning or I'm not a, I'm not a teacher like that. I'm yeah. not the kind of person who goes, oh, you know, I see the joy in someone's eyes when they finally understand. I'm like, good, you finally learnt this crap. Let's move on and go and do something cool. Um, and I've, I suppose in the last 12 months or so, I've kind of stepped into a bit more of a, especially amongst cave divers, a bit more of a mentoring role where I'm not teaching people anything, but I'm helping them get through their, their, their dives. If they need to log a certain number of dives in a certain number of sites, I will go and do that with them. And it, I won't say that's felt like work, um, but it's been more of a case of I'm helping them. I'm helping facilitate them move forward. Um, but yeah, definitely. I've, I suppose I've had numerous people through the years tell me, Oh, you'd be an amazing teacher. I'm like, I'd be a terrible teacher. Like <laughs> I, I, all I do is I push people through to try and get them to a certification. So that when we're allowed to go and do something much cooler, like, mm. can you hurry up and get through this so we can go and do that over there? So um, 
the cave diving is very different for me. Um, there's no sun. There's no wrigglies to grab you. Um, there's no, it's literally you put your gear on, you get in the water, and it does, doesn't matter what time of day it is. It doesn't matter, like, you've always got lights on. Um, so I've gone in and done dives, come out, and it's, you know, the sun is set afterwards, and you're like, yeah. holy crap, like, where did that go? Um, <laughs> or surfacing, especially in somewhere like Mount Gambier, it's raining as you're gearing up. Um, you'll get into the water and you'll come out and then you'll get a sunburn as you're getting out of the water uh, because the, the weather's cleared. So it yeah. definitely feels like a disconnect. You completely disconnect from the rest of reality while you're on the dive. You're focused on the dive. You might occasionally have stray thoughts about other things, but generally you're focused on how deep am I, uh, how far into the cave am I, where are we going next, where do I leave my stage cylinder, your there's a whole raft of different things all happening at once. Why are we doing this? Where are we trying to get to? All those. And I love that. Um, mm. Diving in the ocean. Like, I, the running joke with my partner is that um, why would I dive in the ocean? Whales shit in the ocean. Um, like, it's not, it's not for me. <laughs> um, caves, uh, caves seem to be my thing. Um, I would yeah. cave dive every day if I could. Um, yeah. Whereas I never felt that level of passion for diving in the ocean or teaching people or anything else. I found my niche, I suppose. Yeah. Well, so let's just wind it back a little bit. How did um, we go from, from Mars and then back into diving? Did you have that, that dry spell where you just literally walked away from scuba diving and then came back to it? Yep. So I didn't dive for about seven or eight years all up. Okay. Uh, and... Even after I left the military, I sort of, I looked at maybe teaching again and sort of went, mm. oh, really? No, nah, not for me. Uh, mm. Weirdly enough, it was, I, I ended up doing three comedy shows about Mars and the last show that I did uh, was called Cosmic Nomad and I, the entire focus around that book um, and show, so the focus mm. of the show at the time, it was originally a show, was... Uh, looking at the things that you would do before you left earth. Um, so, you know, you've got 10 years left on earth. What do you do with your time? And I've had a, a book, 101 things to do before you die. That was given to me by a friend from high school. I've had that for years and I've worked through it and ticked a lot of different things off, but it started to reach a point where it felt like a box ticking exercise. Um, yeah. I started as part of this show and then I did it even more. So when I turned it into a book, really started to ask myself what other things I would want to do before I left Earth. And the one thing that came through crystal clear through all of it was cave diving. Um, I'd mm. never learnt to cave dive. I'd read about Dave Shaw, uh, the Australian pilot uh, for Cathay Pacific, who died in Bushman's Hole in 2005 mm. um, at 286 metres or whatever it was, trying to recover Dion Dreyer's body. Um, mm. And I that, that book was supposed to terrify people like when i read raising the dead it was supposed to be this is terrifying this is so complex blah blah i read it and went oh my god i want to learn to dive on a rebreather and i want to dive in caves like that was my instant reaction to reading raising the dead and yeah. uh it took a lot longer um it took a very long time before i actually circled back around to that and went this is the one thing if i if i moved to mars and had to live on a cold dead dusty planet uh like an underground martian vampire for the rest of my life uh yeah. what's the one thing i would miss and it was i said scuba diving and then i started to think about it more and i was like 
It's not the scuba diving. Um, we'd be a little bit weightless. It's only one third of Earth's gravity on Mars. We'd have all that weightlessness getting there. It's not the scuba diving. Uh, it's actually learning to cave dive. It's discovering more and where does this go and does this connect to this and all those sort of things. So um, it was... Yeah, it was a fairly big realization for me that I really wanted to learn to cave dive, and I actually stopped writing the book. I I turned I was turning the show into a book, and I actually paused writing the book uh, for about four or five months to go and learn to cave dive. Um, so the book is still written as if I hadn't learned to cave dive. Um, I kind of had to put myself back into a mindset of I haven't done this yet, uh, but it made a huge difference and mm. it held up the finishing of the book by quite a bit because I'd found something that I'd always wanted to do my entire life and I was finally doing it. Yeah. And by this time, were you in Mount Gambia? I ended up moving to Mount Gambia for it. Okay. Uh, so um, I went to Mount Gambia March 2019 for my, what we call basic cave. Um, okay. So entry-level cave diving course uh, through the CDAA. Uh, it was a week-long I had already organized a house sit afterwards to work on the book immediately afterwards. And so mm-hmm. I kind of, I wanted to stay. I really wanted to stick around. I had a series of house sits after that and I didn't manage to get back to Mount Gambier until the August, uh, at which point I did the level two, the cave rated um, course. Mm-hmm. And during that course got offered a job at the the dive shop that was in Mount Gambier there for a while. And, uh, had another house sit to go and work on the book again and then came back in the October of that year and started working there and, uh, yeah, started living in Mount Gambier essentially. So I was only there for about four months um, mm-hmm. without delving into it too deeply. Uh, that dive shop was pretty pretty hostile, a very hostile work <laughs> environment, um, and I do not miss it. Um, made some good friends out of it, uh, but, yeah, yeah um, the, the management was uh, pretty subpar. Uh, I escaped in about February, um, and at the time, my, um, my, my partner at the time uh, ended up nearly dying in a car crash right before COVID started. So, Jesus. yeah, 2020 was pretty intense. Uh, we, I wound up, we'd, yeah, we'd, we'd broken up, but I wound up being her live-in carer for 10 months um, to sort of help rehabilitate her um, through COVID in Melbourne. Uh, and then, yeah, it wasn't until the end of 2020 that I moved back out to Mount Gambier properly and uh, took over the the habitat, the accommodation for cave divers out there, uh, which I've yeah. now just sold as well. So <laughs> always yeah, moving like that. a hermit crab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and let's um, just bear in mind that we've, we've got a fair few listeners that know nothing about Australia and Mount Gambier. Can you paint a picture, uh, paint a scene of what it's like down there? Short version, Mount Gambier probably looks and feels a lot like uh, the West Country of the UK. Um, So it's actually not, doesn't feel dissimilar from where I was uh, with the Royal Marines around Limpston and Exeter and places like that. Rolling Mm. countryside, um, lots of pine forest. Uh, and all that pine forest is there because it's an enormous limestone cast. So the whole region, it's it, it's all limestone. Uh, it's all very soft. The entire area has also been lifted by volcanic activity. So the most recent sort of volcanic activity we've had in Australia has lifted that whole region up. And so we are essentially cave diving through old um, coral reefs, old sort of compacted uh what used to be the ocean floor has now been lifted up by this volcanic activity 
the water running through it has created these caves. And so the whole area is very lush, very green, gets lots of rain, um, and has holes open up in the middle of paddocks all the time or in the middle of town uh, that then sort of create these opportunities for us to go diving, freshwater um, cave diving throughout the whole region. So it's Australia's most extensive um, freshwater cast system, uh, and it's probably the highest proportion um, of little holes, little areas. It's it's Australia, It's realistically, it's Australia's cave diving sort of hub. It's the capital for cave diving yeah. in the whole region. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's definitely, definitely. Um, and let, let's start, uh, let's have a little look at, um, or little look, let's have a good look at um, this, this dive uh, that has led to you... Um, you know, finding finding more caves. Uh, yeah, well, effectively, it's a it's a is it a completely new cave or it's just it's, it's an extension there? It's an extension. Isn't it? Yeah. So the the short version is Engelbrecht's cave is right in the centre of Mount Gambier. Uh, literally, Jubilee Highway, which runs through the middle of town, is right next to it. There's a little cafe that sits mm. on the top of this cave opening, and for divers, we talk about Engelbrecht's east and Engelbrecht's west. Um, it's a central doline, and like I said, the cafe sits on the top of the doline, and people go down and they go for a little bit of a dry tour and see all sorts of different weird and wonderful things. The divers carry their gear down to the water, and you can either go east or west. People have been diving both sides for the last probably 30, 40 years. Uh, the western side has always been more extensive, so it's a bit more complicated. It's a it's a level three. It's advanced cave, um, mm. and you've got to squeeze through this little hole at the start, swim for 70, 80 metres. It pops up into an air chamber and you can get out, climb over the air chamber and there's a series of tunnels that run off from that as well. Um, hmm. If people make the effort to go and dive at Engelbrecht's, they generally advance cave divers and they generally go and do west because it's much more extensive. East has always been considered a bit of a puddle. So you okay. crawl, you walk down this area, uh, get to the water, climb into the water there's maybe 30 metres of passage at the most. Um, we've we've joked about it quite a bit recently that people could pretty much free dive it if they wanted to. They could free dive mm. through. There's another air chamber on the other side with quite a large rock pile. Um, there's a bit of a side passage around one little area, but realistically, there's maybe 40 metres of passage in Engelbrecht's East. Mm. Um it has been a place where a lot of level two cave divers have gone because it's only rated for cave, um, or it was, um, only rated for cave level. So quite a few cave divers would go to the effort of carrying all their gear down there, go and do this 30-meter swim, um, muck around for a little bit, and then come back and log one of the 25 dives that they need to log as cave-rated divers um, before they can move up to gotcha. advanced. But generally, it's a one dive and done. Um, yeah. I did my level two course in August of 2019. And before we went down to Engelbrecht's East, before we went and jumped in there, a mate of mine and I, um, we both recently certified, chatted to a another diver who sort of mentioned that there was a bit of a puddle at one end. Um, so once you pop up into the surface, there's this huge rock pile. But if you go and scramble over the whole rock pile, climb up a series of rocks and then climb down into a hole, you'll find that there's a bit of a pool back there. Um, so we're like, mm. let's go and check it out. Technically, we probably weren't qualified. Like we were getting, technically we're entering a second sump. We might have been breaking a few rules here and there, but 
it didn't feel or seem like much of a, of a big problem. Um, and I know the rules have changed since then, so it wasn't. It's not a problem now. But at the time, we were sort of like, mm-hmm. oh, we're not sure if we're doing the right thing here. We climbed over all these rocks carrying cylinders. Uh, it was like, this is deeply unpleasant. Um, climbed up, <laughs> down into this hole, got into a water. And realistically, the puddle that we got into uh, would probably be about the size of, of my office here. Um, so yeah. maybe, I don't know, maybe five or six metres wide and maybe sort of eight, nine metres long um, and mm-hmm. and probably only two or three metres deep. Um we jumped in there, went, yep, this is a bit of an adventure, swam around. And as we're swimming around, I, I'd i read a little bit about how some of the caves on the Nullarbor had been sort of extensions had been found by people looking at holes in the roof. Um, so rather than looking down for leads and looking sideways for leads, looking up. And so I sort mm. of shone my light up and it bounced off a reflection. Um, suddenly saw this mirror bounce off the roof. I'm like, what the hell is that? Swam over to mm. it and it was a surface um, so we popped up, put our head through and shone a light and climbed up onto this sort of this beachy type area and shone a light through and we could see beyond that there was a muddy room and there was a bit more water in one corner and a few other things. It was a nasty dry squeeze, like it was ugly to go through there. So we sort of had a look, we were in dry suits and went, you know what, this is enough adventure for today, let's go. Mm. But I got to be in my bonnet about it. I sort of went, no, nah, there's something else back there. Um and Maddie and I sort of went back a few days later. We took wetsuits. We went back to the same place, squeezed through, got into this muddy room at the back. There was quite a large puddle in one corner. Um, and I sort of looked at it and went, I'm going to go through that, put the gear back on, wriggled through this ugly, ugly hole <laughs> and popped up and found essentially a series of sumps on the other side and went holy crap this is amazing like we've definitely found something bizarre back here like don't know this is not on the maps this is very yeah. new we don't know what this is very very cool it was what december 2019 um mm-hmm. matt ended up getting a job with the antarctic division so he's actually down in antarctica has been down in antarctica for the last 15 months um I've kept going with the diving, but obviously COVID has happened. A bunch of different things happened. So it wasn't realistically until maybe mid-2020 that I actually got back in there to have a second look um, and have a look at it properly. I'd gone through a pool. So once we'd gone through that ugly little hole, there was a pool on the other side. And I sort of went, oh, this is pretty cool. There's another pool back here. Didn't give it a whole lot of thought because I thought, oh, no, there's a series of sumps. Let's keep following the sumps. And when I got back in mid-2020, I kind of dislodged a bit of silt. I dragged my fins through, I dislodged a bit of silt, and I just laid on the surface of this lake and watched the silt roll down. I went, oh, that's really pretty. And as I'm watching the Mm. silt rolling down this hill, suddenly it whips away to the right-hand side in completely the wrong direction. And I've gone, what is that? And I've swum down and essentially found the start of what we now know as the Engelbrex extension. So it was the start of... Yeah, so far we've laid a, a bit over 400 metres of line in the new tunnel um, and it just keeps going. Oh like it just keeps extending in all different directions. Um, the cave is completely hooked back around on itself. We talked about Engelbrecht's east, so it's heading you know, on uh-huh. a southeast line, but it, this thing is actually hooked all the way back to go west again. Um, there's a branch that then heads almost directly south like and it breaks off in two different directions. Like there's, yeah, it's a spider web. We always knew there was a spider web network of caves under Mount Gambier. We just weren't expecting it to be at the back of this 
crappy little puddle that people have been ignoring for the last 40 years. So um, yeah. it's it's pretty exciting to be involved in. There's definitely more to be discovered. Um, the logistics of getting there is the challenge for a lot of people. Um, carrying gear over rock piles, dragging things in. Um, it feels like more of a nullable dive than it does a normal mm. Mount Gambier dive. Normally Mount Gambier, you pull up somewhere, put your gear on, get in the water, go for a dive. This is put your gear on, drag it down seven flights of stairs, go through some water, drag it over a 70-meter rock pile, get into some more water, drag it through more dry cave, drag it through a godawful hole that I've had a friend nearly drown in um, to mm. then then start the dive. So <laughs> um, the the logistics of getting in there is, is hard um, and quite dangerous at times, have been quite dangerous at times. We've It's certainly a lot safer than it used to be. Um, just from mm. traffic, uh, people actually going in and out of there, it's sort of smoothed off some of those really jagged rocks and it's made it a lot safer, but it's still very difficult to get in there. It's not a cave that's going to get a lot of traffic, but it's probably the most exciting area of development that we've got in Mount Gambia and have mm. had for a long time. And you say it's um, you know it's quite restrictive. I'm assuming that uh, someone my size, it would probably be a no-no. Uh, it depends. So it's interesting. We, we've had a few different folks of different sizes go through. Um, okay. I've got um, a mate who has recently become advanced cave. Uh, so they've, they've changed the rating for the cave. The, the entrance part, the part that everyone has known about for years and years, remains level two, remains cave rated. But the extension mm-hmm. has been made level three. Um, and it's going to be interesting. We've got a, a mate coming back hopefully soon he's just done his level three course his advanced cave course um and he's huge mm. like dave's dave's a big boy he's six foot two he's not he's not heavy um he's not fat let's say that um mm. he he's he works out like he's a big lad um i will be very interested to see how dave goes getting through that hole um the biggest thing that we've <laughs> noticed with it it's It's been made more difficult going in and out of there by carrying cylinders. Um, Me being a little gremlin the way that I am, I've just been going straight through. So I've kept my rig on, I've kept my cylinders on, and I've like hassled through. I've had a a mate who's a bit taller than me, still, he's very lean. Um, Mm. He's tried to squeeze through with his cylinders on feet first, and he's the one that we ended up holding his head out of the water. There's a puddle of water that he nearly got himself stuck in. Um, So taking cylinders off, uh, makes that whole process a lot easier and safer. Um, and that's the big mm. thing that we're encouraging people to do now. Anytime they go and do it, don't do what I do on the videos. <laughs> Take the <laughs> cylinders off, wriggle through, and then as a team, pass the cylinders through. Um, it's yeah. just I know that particular restriction well enough and I'm small enough that I can just wriggle through with the cylinders still on. But pretty much everyone that yeah. goes through now, we get them to take them off. Yeah, yeah. And this whole process, you know, when, once you found it, did you, um, apart from the obvious elation that would be going on, um, did you decide to keep it a bit of a secret or were you kind of jump out the hole and go, guess what we've got? We had to be careful. I, I'm a very open, open kind of person. Like I want to, I, when I find a new thing, I want to share it. Um, anything mm. I'm excited about, I desperately want to share it. We had to be really careful, um, primarily because the site, was cave rated but the part that we'd found that it was level two rated the section that we'd found was advanced side mount like it was um there were areas in there that were incredibly tight um 
much further into the cave there's a there's a restriction that we call the dormouse um and there's literally two of us that have ever been through it and it's me and and ryan kashkorsky and ryan's like world-renowned cave explorer and ryan has turned around to me and gone mate that thing's a bit tight like um (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's um it's a pretty it is a very ugly restriction um and there's others through the whole area that yeah they they feel unstable or they feel very complex. There's some there's some really nasty restrictions through it. So what we discovered, definitely an advanced cave. Um, mm. Also complicated by uh, the sort of the, the cave diving politics in that this is in the middle of town. It's not just some hole out in the Nullarbor somewhere that, you know, folks from different places can get approval to. It's literally under the streets of Mount Gambia. Um, so it was a, quite a complex kind of political um, situation for the Cave Divers Association in particular of how do we navigate this? How do we negotiate with uh, Mount Gambia City Council? How do we navigate with the cafe owner? How do we navigate with all these different parties? Because we've made this major discovery in a cave that folks have been sort of realistically ignoring for the last 40 years. So um, I didn't want to keep it secret. Um, I also had to make sure that I didn't sort of in the process upset the wrong people um i'm i'm a newbie i'm a new guy like um and to have a new guy come in and suddenly find this big new cave um was definitely going to upset a few folks um so i had to tread really carefully there for quite a long time so even though we made these sort of major discoveries back uh sort of you know early 2021 mid 2021 um it's only just recently, it was only at the, the Cave Divers Association AGM, um, November 5th, that we actually went mm. public with it. Um, I, for folks who came along to Oztech, I gave them a teaser of it. Um, I gave them quite a substantial teaser and any cave diver that has dived Engelbrecht's knew exactly where we were, um, but I didn't mm. name it uh, because I'd sort of, I'd made a promise that we would keep it under wraps so that we could control the information and the CDAA could put in uh, control measures to make sure that inexperienced divers didn't go and try and attempt this thing. There were a couple of folks we were particularly concerned about who mm. um, very, uh, very talented dry cavers, very talented uh, and very experienced in a lot of different areas, but not necessarily experienced cave divers. And there mm. was a real concern that some of those folks would have one look at the, the dry cave section and go, that's easy, we'll knock that out and then get themselves in some really dangerous trouble um, later yeah. on underwater. And yeah, the the information hadn't been shared effectively. Um, rescue plans yeah. hadn't been put in place. There's all these different things that we needed to put in place to try and protect people. Um, so yeah, I had to stay cagey about it for quite a long time, which I hated, um, but it's lovely. <laughs> it's wonderful to now be able to share it with people and encourage people to go there, folks who are qualified to do it, go there and find more stuff because there's more cave to be found. Um, It's not my cave Mm. at all. Um, It's super exciting that other folks are now going in there and looking themselves. Well, it's not your cave, but I think it's quite safe to say that your name's stamped all over it. Yeah, I I think there's going to be some sort of association in the future. (laughs) But again, a bit like the Mars stuff, that's not my thing. I I don't care about my name going down in in history books or anything like that. I care about us discovering more cool stuff. So um, Mm. I'm much more excited about the discoveries that that will come from the Engelbrecht's extension when other people go in there and find more stuff. I still really strongly believe that 
there's more tunnel to be found and that tunnel will potentially connect up to a, a cave that's right in the centre of town, like right next to the library, uh, the Cave Gardens, which is about a kilometre away from Engelbrecht's uh, on a southeast line. I still strongly suspect that those two caves are connected. Um, so I would love yeah. for someone to come along and prove that right to go and find the connection between the two. Well, I, I think Stephen Fordyce might listen to that. <laughs> if, he, if he's not been there already. <laughs> he, he tends to go a lot colder. Well, I shouldn't say a lot colder. Um, Ford, Fordyce was here not long, that long ago, actually. We had a good chat about um, survey yeah. and all those sort of things. And um, he has definitely got his work cut out for him in Tasmania. Uh, he's got so yeah. much work down there that he needs to do. So <laughs> I'm sure he'd love to go and check out uh, the, the extension, but um, I know he's, yeah, I know he's pretty focused down in Tassie. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, how we mentioned previously when we were talking at, at the scientific aspect of, of this find. Um, what's, 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 uh, what's going to come out of that? So the big thing, I suppose, that came out of all of this, the, the initial discovery, uh, I'm talking about mm-hmm. me and Matty Aisbert going and finding this puddle, blah, blah, blah. That was yep. one thing. What was really interesting to come out of all of it was uh, the survey. So I had a bit of time during COVID, um, to or during 2020, do a bit of research. I couldn't dive these places, but I could look up as much information as possible. I ended up getting myself a survey tool, one of the Monemos, um, that allowed me to start surveying some of this stuff. So as soon as I got back to Mount Gambier, that became the survey project. Like I started trying to do as much survey as possible. And looking at Engelbrecht's East was particularly interesting because I knew about this series of sumps. I knew that we'd found it end of 2019. And looking at it and using the survey data, it became really clear that uh, what we'd actually found was a fissure line. Um, So it was a a split because the whole area has been lifted by volcanic action. There's all these fissure lines that run across it. And in that particular part of of the region, all the fissure lines run sort of southeast. They run on about 140 degrees. So we'd looked into it and this Engelbrecht's fissure that we'd found was running once again at 140 degrees. So we were thinking, okay, we need to push that line. We need to keep following along there. And that's why when... I sort of I went back in initially. I was following the sumps and kept trying to pursue this 140 degree line. What I hadn't realised, and it took a bit more research and and conversations with people like Ian Lewis, uh, we we call him Cave Santa. He's a, a, he's a um, cave diving geologist, um, and he's yeah, Ian's incredible. Like Louis's been doing stuff for so long um, mm. and understands the shapes of the cave. So chatting to him. Uh, chatting to him was really interesting to sort of discover you've got all these lines, but you've also got cross fractures that connect them. Uh, and if you go and look at something like Tank Cave, which is what everyone comes to Mount Gambier to dive, you know, more than eight kilometers of passage, it's got all these fissure lines that you dive along, but there's also cross fractures that connect the t- those tunnels together. And what I actually found in Engelbrecht's, we found the, the initial fissure line when I said the silt rolled the wrong way, it went off to the right-hand side, what we'd actually found was a cross fracture. Um, and the rooms okay. that we've found from there are still on that 140 degrees, but they're running parallel to the initial fracture line that we were on. So for me, I suppose, out of all of this, it's come back to the science background. It's come back to my physics degree, uh, looking mm-hmm. at all this stuff and going, okay, what is the cave actually doing? Um don't get too bogged down in the geology. Look at the fracture lines. Look at the over overreaching patterns. Where should we be checking? Um, 
and I suppose trying to apply a bit of a science to cave exploration rather than rather than just sort of going at it willy-nilly. Uh, oh, I reckon mm-hmm. I've got a feeling that there's something there. There's a lot of that that happens amongst the folks who do cave exploration. And more often than not, they're not wrong, um, but it feels a bit woolly to me. It feels like a black art of being like, oh, you know, um, so-and-so can sniff out a cave, rah, rah, rah. It's like... I worked yeah. in the I worked in the mining industry as a blaster for a while, um, and there was a lot of that as well. It's like, oh, you know, it's a, blasting's a black art. And I was like, it's not. It it's literally physics. Like we can <laughs> we can physics this out. Um, and I've kind of I've come at cave diving in much the same way. It's like, yes, the cave does unusual, unexpected things, but there are overreaching patterns here that we can look for. And if we collect data, if we create survey maps if we look at overlays we do all those sort of things we can see those overlaying things my big thing is about trying to connect caves you know this one is close to this one and we know that this one goes roughly this way so where's the connection Um, and where should we be Mm. looking for a connection between the two and originally my interest in survey came from trying to connect pines cave to sting nettle Uh, they're we know that they're very close to, they are very, very close to each other. We know that Pines Cave gets within about 60 metres of the stinging nettle doling. So I was trying to find a way to connect the two um, by surveying them and finding out which lead we should pursue and all those sort of things. We still haven't found the connection between the two, but that's where the interest started from and applying that sort of scientific approach to it, look at the data and then being able to figure things out. We've made discoveries in Pines Cave, not the ones that we wanted, but we've made other discoveries in Pines Cave that people have been sort of hypothesizing about for 20, 30 years. We've managed to prove it in a dive. Um, We sort of went, oh, you know, we think the white room is connected to the wedge room. Let's go and find out. We survey it, and sure enough, the dots are within half a metre of each other. So you go down there, find a hole between the two, and you pass a GoPro through it, and you prove the connection between the two. So... Um, mm. it's about, I suppose, collecting data, analyzing that data, making theories out of it, uh, and then testing those theories, which is at its heart, it's that science at its core. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it helps having this, this, this kind of, I would assume a, a, a new set of eyes looking at it, you know, it's a, a, it's a, a really big approach. One. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things that I've chatted to Ryan Kashkorsky about quite a bit. Um, he's sort of said, it's nice because I am relatively new, I've only been at this comparatively to other folks. I've only been at this, what, three years or so. Um, Mm. Having fresh eyes, fresh perspective makes a big difference. Um, And it's Mm. been wonderful diving with someone like Ryan, who I suppose he looks at things a particular way and he, he does things quite intuitively. And I sort of go, well, why do you do that? And he goes, well, that's, that's just what you do. And I sort of go, well, that's Mm. not what I do. And, we don't compete with each other. Um, we run sort of parallel and I see things that he doesn't and he sees things that I don't. Um, and that's been wonderful mm. having that sort of that dual view of certain places. Um, again, Ryan's one of the, well, Ryan, Ryan is the only other person uh, that has been to the far reaches of the Engelbrecht's extension so far. Um, and he's seen things um, and he's seen leads that I completely missed. And I've seen other, mm. I've followed and laid line in different areas that he didn't even notice was there. So um, yeah. if you've got that perspective, and again, more eyes on it, that's why I'm really excited about other people diving this cave because it will mean more eyes, more perspectives, um, and more opportunities for people to discover more. So, mm. 
Mm. And um, have, have you kind of slowed up going in there yet? Or are you still just banging back in there as often as you can? I've slowed right back. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was pretty intense. And selling selling the accommodation was a really big one for me. So living in Mount Gambier was a bit much. Um, mm. I had people staying with me all the time, wanting me to dive with them. And I kind of fell into that mentoring role that I talked about where I would go and dive with people to develop their skills and not necessarily be doing the dives that I wanted to be doing. Now that I've moved up to Adelaide, um, I'm getting into different work. I've gone back to study. I'm doing a few different things. And it means those times that I do go down to Mount Gambier, they are much more intense. It's not a, oh, we're going to sort of, you know, do you want to go for a dive? Oh, I don't really feel like it. I'm going to watch such and such. It's like, no, no, we're here for a week. And this is the hit list. This is where we're going to go. I want to go and check out this lead. I want to go and do this. I want to do that. Um, not everyone is up for the challenge of uh, Engelbrecht's extension, um, mm-hmm. but for the folks that I, I trust, that I do want to do that with, um, we organise times. So um, I'm actually heading back down in about three, well, a bit over two weeks um, to meet up with yeah. Martin Slater, who Martin's one of the key divers uh, for mapping and exploring um, the extension. Martin and I are going to meet up. We're mainly focused on some other stuff that we want to check out in Tank Cave, um, but we will also go back to the extension um, and see if there's see if there's some things that we've missed. Um, now yeah. that it's surveyed and it's been sort of mapped out, I suppose, we're a little bit hesitant to go back in, but with a bit of time away from it, it'll be interesting to sort of go, you know what, I do really want to go and check out that little thing that was over on that side. I only looked at it once. I reckon there might be something there. And even if we waste an entire dive following a lead that goes nowhere, at least we can cross mm. that lead off off the list. So um, yeah, it's made it, it much more road, focused. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. And what's the what's the move up to Adelaide leading to? What's what's going on up there? Uh, well, my my partner's up here. Uh, so okay. Chloe, Chloe Reed, who was again key to discovering Engelbrecht's um, extension. Uh, it's, it's, her, uh, it's her face that's on the, uh, on the ABC cover photo. <laughs> didn't you? Wasn't it, I, I, I might be wrong, but isn't there a, a video or a YouTube or Facebook or whatever it was, but there's a you lot laughing your tits off at her trying to come through. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Sliding all oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's, uh, I was describing that area before. I sort of said that we, um, Matt and I came up a bit of a beach, squeezed through some dry yeah. cave into a muddy room. So that's footage of uh, Simon Backman and I being in that muddy room and Chloe yeah. squeezing through that area into the mud room. Um, and just <laughs> off to the left-hand side of the screen is the rabbit yeah. hole, is that nasty little hole that we talk about. Um, yeah, so we shared a bit of footage. It was a bit of a, that was a bit of a taste tester. Um, yeah. We Folks knew we were up to something. They didn't know where we were up to it, but they knew we were up to something and showing dry cave people in dry suits, but dry cave in Mount Gambier, that's very uncommon. Um, So that video was interesting. A for a laugh to sort of take the piss out of Chloe, uh, which we all love to do. Um, (laughs) But also an opportunity to share an area that people didn't recognize. People didn't know um, and see if folks picked up on the fact that we were in, we were in dry suits in a dry cave yeah. somewhere that they didn't recognize. So, um, yeah. but yeah. no, Chloe's, uh, Chloe's an ICU nurse up here in Adelaide. Um, and we've been doing long distance for far, 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 far too long. Um, and yeah. with the sale of the habitat, it was like, nah, this is the easy thing to do. 
Um, I have got a lot of things. I've got books I want to work on. I'm studying cybersecurity at the moment. I'm doing a whole raft of different things. And Mount Gambier is not the right place for that. Um, yeah. And we're also five hours closer to the Nullarbor. So I'm not planning a Nullarbor <laughs> trip for another four or five months. We'll probably look at going out March, April. Um, yeah. But it does cut down the time considerably. And when I've done Nullarbor trips in the past, rather than leaving from Mount Gambier, I leave from Mount, Mount leave from the Mount, come up to the Adelaide uh, up here, stay with Chloe for the night and would then go on. Mm. Now I'm already, like I said, five hours closer. So instead of it being a 24-hour trip, it's now an 18-hour trip. So yeah. um, it'll make yeah exploration on the Nullarbor a lot easier. Yeah, fair one, fair one. And um, did you say that you're writing books again? I'm trying to, yeah. So I've got okay. there's probably there's half a dozen different ideas brewing in the background, but there's two or three mm. key ones. Um, I've always wanted to write a book about ET, about uh, why people think they've been abducted, why we have like um, programs for searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, the the Navy, uh, the U.S. Navy videos that they put out with like these things buzzing around, all that sort of stuff. Um, aliens fascinate people and I suppose I'm a bit of a scientific storyteller that's always been the way that I present myself and so being able to talk about the science and the but not be a jerk about it it's kind of (laughs) I don't I don't want to be one of those uh, those skeptics who are like oh that's nonsense and blow everything out of the water but I still want to be able to talk about the realities of like hey this is a little too far out there. This thing's not realistic because of such and such. But what about this mm. other crazy stuff over here? Um, hey, isn't this an amazingly cool thing over here instead? So um, I don't want to shut down folks' stories about being abducted by aliens. Um, but there's, <laughs> yeah, and without delving into it too deeply, um, there's an interesting parallel. Carl Sagan wrote about this quite a bit in one, in one of his last books, Demon Haunted World, talking about how the number of demonic possessions that were reported dropped at the same rate that alien abductions came up. Um, and it actually comes back to a far more interesting thing, talking about sleep paralysis and, and night terrors um, and people okay. experiencing things like that and it feeling like an out-of-body experience. Um, so being able to write a book about that would be really, really interesting. I've had that on the cards for quite a few years and I'd love to delve into something that's sort of parallel i suppose talking about um our relationship with reality our relationship with death um all those sort of things as well so yeah i love talking about philosophy and i love trying to make it as funny as possible while also Mm. getting as many sort of facts in there as possible yeah yeah if i want it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you oh yeah uh... (laughs) (laughs) it's a long work list yeah there's a, I'm just thinking there's a there's a lady coming on the show in uh, in the new year, uh, Karen Hoffman, and um, she um, she effectively takes scientific research papers and makes sense of them so that dumbasses like myself can understand them. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe have a go at that as well while you're doing the other six million. Things. Yeah, well, realistically, that's that's what I was always trying to do with comedy. Um, that was the goal yeah. was to try and take hard science and things, academic uh, papers that were, weren't were accessible to people 
and put them in terms uh, that folks would relate to and and understand. Um, one of my favourite ones, I, I talked about the the Drake equation, which is a, an equation that's used for calculating the probability that there's other intelligent civilizations that we can communicate with in the Milky Way. And mm. I basically sort of spelled the whole thing out and everyone obviously in the audience is going, what is that? I went, it's fine, guys. This is just like Tinder and broke it down into like, here's your search <laughs> radius. These are the things, these are the attributes that you're looking for. This is the age range. Like, And realistically, the Drake equation works the same way that Tinder does. <laughs> and people could relate to that. So that's always been the challenge for me is to try and make science, I suppose, relatable. These things are really interesting and cool, um, but people mm. sort of get overwhelmed by the academic language and the the elitism that we see. Um, I could never be an academic. I couldn't fit into a university environment like that for those same yeah. reasons. But the stuff that they're researching and doing is really, really cool. So why not try and make it more accessible for people? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good call. I wish you well with it. Thank you. Um, Josh, um, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you, buddy, and, and learning about your crazy life so far and i look forward to i look forward to so much more out of you no pressure but you know you've got to yeah i bet so i've set i've set the bar high so far so <laughs> <laughs> no thank you so much for having me on it's been an absolute pleasure to talk awesome source mate and um hey let's speak soon and have a good christmas it's a little bit early but uh you know it's just around the corner i've ordered Enjoy the tree so yep <laughs> too easy thank you good on you mate and uh, everyone who's listening, we can uh, throw in Josh's links in the show notes. So if you want to find out more, then uh, just head on over there and, and hit him up. Uh, thanks for listening. This Bye for now. Is Scuba Go Go Under the Sea, the podcast for the inquisitive diver.